You don't love me half like I love you. That ain't fair, and what's more, that ain't true. I slept with another guy just for you. Shot a man and watched him die just for you. Dressed myself up like a nun. Ooh, sounds like you had lots of fun, but I'm in jail for what I've done just, just for you. You, you say that, that you love me, but you don't have a clue. Your love, love don't come near what I do just for you. I stayed with that man all night just for you. That shows that you care, all right. Yes, it do. I was good as I could be, and I did it all for free. They're gonna hang me from a tree just, just for you. you. You think, think I, I don't love you? Well, darling, that ain't true. You, you have, have no idea what I do just for you. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, June 17, 2018. Happy Father's Day. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. All right. With us this morning, we have a special guest. Frank Verlizzo, otherwise known as Fravor, is uh, joining us by telephone. Broadway fans probably don't know that they know Frank, but they do definitely do because he has been the designer of amazing Broadway posters for five decades and as uh, luck would have it there's a book called Fravor by Design Five Decades of Theater Poster Art from Broadway Off Broadway and Beyond Frank thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us oh sure good morning thanks for asking me so how did you get into this crazy world of designing theater posters when you were like sitting with your high school guidance counselor? Did he say, Hey, Fra Frank design theater posters. How did this happen? Yeah. yeah I wish it were that easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, uh, it was a kind of a smooth road and very fortuitous. I went to high school of art and design. And from there, uh, that's on 57th Street in Manhattan. And from there, I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. And my illustration teacher in uh, senior year was David Bird, who designed the Follies poster and Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar and all these mega shows. Uh, and he, he used to teach class in his studio. And my first, you know, our first class there, he was working on the Follies poster. It was taped to his drawing board, and he was oh my God. Wow. showing his wow. technique. And so he knew I was uh, entertainment-oriented, uh, certainly. Everything I did for class was pretty much movie-oriented. Movie so when I was getting ready to graduate, he suggested I show my portfolio at Blaine Thompson, which was the major... Broadway ad agencies, and uh, it sort of took off from there. It was pretty wonderful. All right. Now, the day came when you had to design a Follies poster, and, <laughs> under, and under those circumstances, was that one of the most daunting jobs you ever had? Yes. It was horrifying and glorious at the same time. Uh -huh. I, I had always, you know, when I did the, um, I had designed the Sondheim Celebration at the Kennedy Center, 
but Follies was not one of the productions. So I always thought I was going to miss my big chance to design for Follies. Of course, when it came a a few years later, I was petrified. But I did uh, write to David and tell him that I had been asked asked, and I was, uh, you know, very, very panic-stricken. And he put me at ease and said, oh, just enjoy it. And, you know, how great that you're doing it. So he sort of really... Uh, allowed me to relax uh, in the design process. Continuing in a Sondheim vein, um, I know, Frank, you have a wonderful story about the iconic Sweeney Todd poster design. And (laughs) I thought maybe you could share that with our readers. Sure. Um, I had, uh, well, the, the whole long process for Sweeney Todd involved numerous other artists and whittling artwork down and it Finally, they decided that those two characters were uh, the way they wanted to go. But um, I had seen costume sketches of Angela Lansbury, and she appeared very, very fat. And Hal Prince, the director, mentioned to me that she was probably going to be padded. So I went ahead and drew all these drawings and then found out that I had to present them to her for approval since she had store approval. And I immediately went back in and drew Mrs. Lovett in various weights going from heavy to thin because I just wanted to cover myself Mm -hmm. just in case. (laughs) And that was a very good thing because I did uh, meet with her and she was delightful. But when she saw the first drawing, which was... um, quite heavy. She was taken aback and I explained that I'd, I'd been told that she was going to be padded and she said, you know, let's use the thinnest drawing. I'll just play it fat. <laughs> and she sure did. She was pretty fabulous. <laughs> and what, sure makes it, what makes it even more interesting is I believe you said that the, the figure of Sweeney Todd himself, uh, that was pre-existing from, one, from the... Uh, yes, it's, it, an, it's a turn-of-the-century woodcut. Right, and so then you then you had to create a, from scratch a Mrs. Lovett in, in that looked like it was in ex, and indeed did look like it was in exactly the same style. Ah, oh, thank you. Well, I redrew him, but pretty much stuck to what was there. But right. I did want my hand to you know you can tell when something's just been patched on to something else. Oh sure, sure. So that was uh, that was the reason I did that. All right. When Hirschfeld drew Carol Burnett for the logo of Fade Out, Fade In in 1964, the first drawing didn't wind up uh, to be what was used. Uh, There was a more glamorous, well, I don't know if you say glamorous, but a better looking Carol Burnett under the circumstances. And um, I'm wondering if you ever drew anyone where uh, the star said, excuse me, I don't like the way you made me look. Um, yeah, I sort of, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to uh, mention the act she's still around, but okay. I had, uh, designed this poster, uh, and it involved the images of the, this actress and her leading man, both wonderful. I, you know, I, I thought they were the best around and she called the producer and myself to her, uh, hotel room just before, um, the first preview and really went into this tirade about how she hated her the hair on on the poster and made her look like she was trying to appear young and she's not trying she's not young and she doesn't want her friends to think she's trying to look young but it was quite a performance Uh i was kind of like hypnotized by 
why she was making such a mountain out of a molehill, but I, you know, I could sort of understand it. Right. But um, the producer, who who was also very sort of you know conservative, suddenly became also very dramatic and picked up the phone and said, "I'm going to call Playbill and have them destroy all of the Playbill wow. covers." I mean, it was. I felt like I could sell tickets to this, and I was the only audience, unfortunately. <laughs> But that was the only time, and I actually did change the hair. Uh-huh. Uh, not in time for the first preview, but uh, wow. it, it happened fairly quickly. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, on, your death, on your deathbed, we want the confession. Uh, to <laughs> now, well, with, I, okay, now, that's a deal. <laughs> with buyer and seller. Uh, the yes. show that uh, Jonathan Tolans wrote about a man who ostensibly worked for Barbara Streisand. Um, you had uh, two logos in the book that are really quite fascinating. I think are worth the price of of the book itself. So tell us about okay. those two those two drawings that uh, didn't make the cut that you thought were uh, a good idea. <laughs> Uh, well, I had seen the show. They knew they were moving it to Barrow Street, and it was at the time still playing at Rattlestick in the smaller theater in uh, the village. And I was fortunate. I was catching it just before it was going to close, so at least I was going to get to see it, which is always a big help. Reading the play is wonderful, but, I mean, actually getting to see it is, you know, pretty fantastic. Sure. Uh, and the first thing that struck me was how funny it would be to parody – famous Barbara Streisand movie posters <laughs> for the artwork. But um, the producer was very afraid to go that close to anything Barbara Streisand. He felt very a little tentative about the show to begin with. <laughs> so uh, although he thought the idea was funny, he really didn't want to go that way. But I had parodied the poster for Funny Girl, the logo design, which actually my first boss had designed. So I felt especially happy to be able ah. to do that. And uh, I parodied Funny Lady. And I do think that those two posters are, uh, you know, they're very, very funny. And I think they would have gotten a lot of attention. But unfortunately, they never yeah. saw the light of day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking about... Uh posters that never saw the light of day in your book you have uh unpublished things that uh, are that were ideas i'm assuming that you threw out uh during the development of of various posters uh yeah and so uh, i'm just going to tell listeners that you have to buy this book because (laughs) these posters that are unpublished are the by no means are these of any lesser quality. These are amazing different takes on uh, on shows that we all know and love. Sideshow One, Smoose Murders is in here. <laughs> so uh, tell me about the development process. You just mentioned that you got to see buyer and seller in between a move, but sometimes you're brought in, uh, very often you're brought in for an original piece that's never been up on its feet. So, uh, sure. uh, you know... Tell us about the longest lead time you've had and tell us about the shortest lead time you've ever had to develop a piece of artwork for a show. Well, before I answer that, I'm just going to explain that for the the process of choosing a show poster is basically the decision of producers, general managers, press agents, everybody Mm -hmm. gathers together and sees a presentation. And 
during the course of my working at ad agencies, which I don't do anymore, I'm now on my own, but I was the creative director and would have to present art and also hire the other artists to design art for the same shows I was working on. But the interesting part about that is that I got to see other people's viewpoint and their take on a show. And uh, it was it was always fascinating to me how, you know, you get eight artists and you get eight totally different ways of looking at something. Sure. But um, the longest time I've had probably was actually for the Follies revival because the uh, Kennedy Center asked me to do it and I had an entire summer to do it, which was pretty wonderful. And the shortest time, hmm, there were an awful lot of those. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if I could really pick one out. <laughs> all right. Do you do you get a royalty? Uh, actually, I own all the pieces of art except for, of course, the major one, Lion King. But you know, Disney is Disney, and they own everything. <laughs> uh, and I do get—I um, don't know if you call it a royalty, but I do get payment if the art is used on a book cover or CD mm. or uh, sheet music or, you know, whatever for a musical, obviously plays if it's on a book cover for the published play, but that's not really a royalty. It's just another payment. Uh-huh. So the now, answer is no, I don't get royalties. All right. However, now this is very interesting about Disney. Um, obviously you knew this in advance going in that um, they would own everything, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. All right, and still you felt it was worth it to do it, even though that um, you were just a hired hand for that one. Oh, sure. I mean, it, well, first of all, it was Disney, and I'm a big Disney fan, and certainly it, w- it was obviously going to be a major Broadway uh, entity. Little did we know 20-odd yeah. years later sure, it sure. would still be around. So mm-hmm. I think I, I made a good call on that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, there's the the famous story about it's it's kind of related about a funny thing happened on the way to the forum about how initially the show wasn't working because the opening number wasn't in the right spirit. It wasn't letting the right. audience know to expect comedy. And I think one can say that uh, uh, I don't think we can overestimate how much a, a poster art, how much of an effect that has on uh, the the reader or the or theater goer, uh, I, I think it can really create a tone before you know anything else about the show. And if it if someone were to do a poster design that was misleading, uh, and that you know, and that it wound up appearing on the posters and on the uh, on the sheet music right. book cover, and um, that that could be an issue in terms of the show's success. I I, I wonder if. Um, if we all realize the extent to which that's true. Well, the the wonderful thing about what I do and the thing I love about it most is that it is the very first exposure anyone has to the show. Mm. So they're immediately going to get an impression of something one way or the other. It's either going to intrigue them or not. Hopefully it will. But um, in terms of misleading, it's very... I mean, it's it's happened certainly, but it's rare that uh, the groups that are uh, I'm collaborating with, once I've done my design process, would really want to go out of their way to mislead because I think they're they're savvy enough to know that ultimately they'll come back to bite them. Oh sure, sure. Um, 
and I certainly, if if I saw, if I ever saw in any of our meetings things going that way, I would try to be the voice of reason and calm everybody down and get them back on track. <laughs> that All right, never which happens le- in production meetings. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads to another question, and that is the fact that I remember when Meet Me in St. Louis opened, um, Frank Rich didn't like the show, but he also took a swipe at uh, Hillary Knight, who had done the logo. Did you Ooh. ever get a bad review? Uh, for <laughs> did anybody ever say Hillary Knight? That poster is wonderful. <laughs> oh, there you are. Well, you know, you can't please everybody. So, uh, so under not. so under those circumstances, anybody ever in a review taken a swipe at the logo that you've drawn? Uh, no, I, I really that I can remember never have never gotten a bad review, but I did get a great review. Oh, for uh, Stephen Sondheim and George Furt's play "Getting Away with Murder." Oh yeah! Oh, and that the show was so great. opened, huh? So great, so great. <laughs> Thank you. The show opened. It did not get very good reviews. Oh. But um, in in the time uh, in the Newsday review, Linda Weiner said that she uh, I had a, a gargoyle as a piece of art holding a gun, and her quote was the only good quote we could find to put in the ad, and it was the gargoyle is adorable. <laughs> and the fabulous producer and press agent, uh, Bill Evans, Roger Berlind, all agreed that it actually would be kind of a fun way to usher the show out. So we did run that, and that ad actually is in the book, and I, I'm very proud of that. I think it's a wonderful little ad. <laughs> oh, that's they true. use the quotation, but you changed the drawing for the uh, closing. Yes, notice. I did uh, in the artwork, the actual artwork, the uh, gargoyle is pointing a gun at someone. You can't see who it is. But in the ad, he is now pointing the gun to his own head. <laughs> right. With the banner, last 12 performances. Right. <laughs> so it's quite funny and did get a lot of attention So for the week that it ran. <laughs> the week that it ran, yeah. Frank, the, uh, as far as I know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the window card has maintained the same size for three decades, four decades or so. Yeah, more, sure. Absolutely. I was going to say, I'm sure more than that. Yeah. More than that. I, I could only remember back to what I, I can think of. And, uh, <laughs> sure. and, but now we see a lot of digital art, uh, marquees coming up. And does that, uh, have you been asked by any productions to, create a different type of look and feel for a digital marquee? Uh, No, because actually uh, it's really irrelevant how the marquee is being produced uh, digitally or if, I mean, when I started uh, King Display, which is still in business and thriving, hand-painted the marquees. Mm -hmm. And then we went to printing on um, vinyl, and now it's heading toward digital. The only um, challenge, and it's really not a big one because sort of by design that way, is uh, proportioning it so that it fits into a square marquee rather than a vertical uh, poster image, which is what the 14 by 22 size is. But that's really, and banner ads uh, online take various uh, sizes and shapes and proportions. And as long as the artwork is flexible, and I do always try to keep that in mind when I'm designing, it's easily applicable to any of those uh, visuals. I want to go back to The Lion King for a minute. Uh, you know, you're designing a, 
art for the Broadway production of an internationally famous movie, uh, and yet the look and feel of it is so dramatically a, a departure from the movie. Uh, what was it like? Uh, were there any sacred cows that did Disney say you can or can't do things? How many di- different iterations did you go through there? Well, uh, once again, that was a huge presentation. I was working at Gray Entertainment, and we uh, there were at least easily 100 pieces of artwork at the oh. presentation wow. because every artist in town wanted to work on it, mm-hmm. and we thought, well, how great. Let's get them. So we had a really incredible presentation. But ultimately, I mean, my way of thinking was that Disney keeps things simple because uh, merchandising is key. And the more complicated the piece of art, the more difficult the merchandising would be. And And I had just my recollection from the movie was a cave painting of Simba that somebody sees in a, um, it was a very uh, quick scene. It wasn't certainly anything that anybody dwelled on, but I did remember that cave painting and that's where the idea of just doing the simple head uh, started. You've had, uh, you've done such shows as Death Trap, Sunday in the Park with George, Our Town, Carrie, On Your Toes, Follies. You also designed for the Tony Awards, The King and I, Forbidden Broadway. You've been all over the map here. Yeah. <laughs> which which of your uh, I'm thinking of Carrie specifically, but maybe there's another one. Was there <laughs> a show that closed quickly that you were like, oh, but the artwork is so great? <laughs> <laughs> Nick and Nora. Well, maybe, getting away with murder know. was one of them. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, Carrie, I actually designed uh, the Off Broadway revival. And it really, the Off-Broadway revival asked me, uh, Dean Pitchford, who's, uh, uh, who was involved, certainly, asked me to do it. But really, the, the Off-Broadway uh, production was about to end. It was a limited engagement, but asked me to do it for a CD cover for the original cast yeah. album. And... Um, also for licensing in the future so that it would be the official carry poster uh, across the country as shows mm. uh, as uh, theaters did it. Hmm. So that's where that carry came from. I did work on the original one, though, but my art wasn't used. It is. Ah. <laughs> well, there's the problem. <laughs> yeah, wait, uh, it it would have still been running. Problem. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> See you what never I mean? know. See what I mean about how important a poster design can be. <laughs> uh, you've gotten to work with obviously Stephen Sondheim and the team at the Lion King, uh, Tim Rice and Elton John, and uh, I actually Rich- did not. I worked with uh, Julie Taymor for Lion oh. King. I didn't. Oh. I did, no one else was really that involved. And Thomas mm-hmm. Schumacher, the producer. Sure. Do you ever hear the uh, story about the house seats at the Lion King between Tim Rice and uh, Tim Rice and Elton John? The no. fights. <laughs> they in their contract they were uh, each allocated four or eight house seats per performance or something like that, and 
the story goes that Elton found out that the house seats allocated to Tim Rice were an inch wider than the house seats allocated to him. Uh, it was a big, because, you know, how, seats in a theater are not the same width because of yeah, the right. ability to fan them out. And But, you know, that was a fun production meeting. Anyway. Uh, so. uh, that is great. I like that. In the long run, Tim Rice was like, I don't care. Give Give Elton John my seats. I don't care. You know, so. Wow. Anyway, so Frank, thank you for joining us on a Sunday morning. We really appreciate it. Fravor by Design, the five decades of theater poster art from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and, and beyond is available at many different bookstores, but the best bookstore to buy it from is the Drama Bookshop, right? Sure. So uh, you can get it at the Drama Bookshop. You can get it many of the places. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Frank. It's Thank good you, with guys. You and happy Father's Day to you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and thanks for having me. I love talking about the book, and I certainly love what I do, so it gives me great pleasure to, to uh, talk to you guys about it. You say that you love me, but darling, let's review. You can't hold a candle to all the loving things I do, because everything I ever do is just for, just for, just my life again. I'd sleep with a hundred men, and I'd do it cheerfully. Please don't be so good to me. If I did, then it would be just for you. Okay, Peter, you got up to the Barrington stage where you saw Bill Finn's new musical, well, quote-unquote new musical, The Royal Family of Broadway. This musical has been kicking around for many years, hasn't it? Well, you know, Julie Stein made a very famous statement. At least I heard it was attributed to musicals aren't written, they're rewritten. But (laughs) what uh, what also can be said is musicals are are not scheduled, they're rescheduled. So um, it is true that this one um, has been around for a while. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, Ann Kaufman Schneider, the daughter of George S. Kaufman, um, certainly had approval. And uh, as a result, a lot of rewrites had to be done. So that's, that's part of the reason. In fact, if you get the Make Me a Song album, you'll find some songs from the Royal Family of Broadway. And I think there are about six of them. And only two are now in the show. Mm-hmm. So um, so it has gone through a lot. Um, and uh, it's a very entertaining show for its own sake. And I really have to point out that the book by Rachel Scheinkin is not just a cut and paste job. It really has a lot of wonderful lines that aren't find, found in the original play. Now, if you don't know the original play, The Royal Family of Broadway was essentially um, a, a parody of uh, the Barrymore family, uh, John Barrymore, Lionel, um, Ethel, uh, for whom the theater on 47th Street is named. It was called the Royal Family then, and ironically enough, it picked up the uh, of Broadway when it was made into a movie uh, some years later. But <clears throat> anyway, they've gone back to that movie title for the Royal Family of Broadway, and that's one of the rare examples of a musical that has expanded a title rather than contracted it, because, you know, like Auntie Mame became Mame, you know, et cetera. Uh, so many of them do cut them down, but this one 
Stone uh, expands it, which is fine. So um, this is about uh, a family that is just consumed by the theater. Uh, there is a question in uh, asked in the show, did you see the paper today, in which Fanny Cavendish, the grand dame, the um, uh, mater filias of the family, uh, <laughs> says, why, what opened? Um, and that's this, the, their world is simply the theater. And um, the problem is that Julie Cavendish, who is Fanny's daughter, is now performing, and she knows that in the audience is Gilbert, the man she loved 20 years ago, whom she gave up to have a career, and now it's 20 years later, and she said 20 years on the stage, and it's been grand, but maybe she should get involved with Gilbert uh, if he's interested again. She's not sure that he is, but if he is, she's perhaps interested as well. He, in the interim, has gone to Brazil, uh, where the nuts are from, and um, he has made a fortune uh, down there in Brazil, so um, she'd certainly have a secure life and um, I guess if it's good enough for Mary Martin it'd be good enough for her to live in Brazil but so that's one conflict now uh, the other thing is that um, there's the eccentric Barrymore uh, played um, by Will Swenson and he's supposed to represent John who's always in trouble in fact um, he's really um, in great trouble now because he's actually inadvertently killed a man and he wants to get out of the country and uh, Gilbert may be able to help him to do that but he's very flamboyant he's very swashbuckling and Will Swenson does a marvelous job in doing this so so that's another part of the family but then there's Gwen who's the daughter of uh, Julie who um, is in love with Perry and a nice young man who has no interest in the theater whatsoever, but he's a nice guy and he'll be a good provider, et cetera, et cetera. So the question becomes, will she make the quote unquote mistake that her mother made by not taking love where she could find it? Or would it be a mistake to marry and give up a career? Because in this version, and this is very clever, I don't think this is the original version. I may be wrong, but what's going to happen is that uh, Julie is going to do another show and Gwen is going to take over her part in the show that um, Julie is leaving. So really, here's a real chance to become a star. So I think that's a very clever move, and I really don't believe that's in the original play. So... So you have all these um, theatrical folks, and also Chip Zion is there to play uh, the manager of the the troupe, um, of the family, I should say, and um, the agent, manager, producer, all those uh, things rolled into one in essence. And um, he's been handling Fanny since day one, and he has a wonderful song about that, about how she was, how she mesmerized him from the first time he ever saw her. It's not a loving relationship. It's uh, it is loving, but it's not a romantic relationship, is what I should say, because Fanny was married to Aubrey Cavendish. Um, whom she speaks of with great reverence. And uh, so, so you say you have a few conflicts here. Uh, will Julie go off with Gilbert? Um, will Gwen marry Perry and give up the stage? Uh, will Tony get out of town? Um, so these are all good questions. Now, Bill Finn doesn't seem to be um, the type of composer you would immediately think of for somebody uh, writing a score that's set in 1927. That's when it's set. And... Um, but he does, he's done a good job, and there's music that's, uh, that sounds like ragtime. I don't mean the show. I mean ragtime music. Uh, Charleston is in there, too. So, so he's done a very good job uh, with the music. There's one fundamental problem, and um, I don't know how you're going to get around this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the problem is... And it's, you, you have to forgive them because you understand where they were coming from. If you're going to do a musical, um, why not make them a musical family? 
Okay, so as a result, the first time we see Julie, it, the show opens with Julie on stage, um, virtually. Um, Fanny has a moment, but it, the first number is Julie actually performing in the musical she's in right now. And in fact, it's 1927. The show she is leaving, um, she is now going into Showboat. Um, they don't say showboat, but they talk about, they talk about it in such descriptive terms. And it is 1927. You know that it is showboat, and there's talk about it like a groundbreaking new musical that's going to change everything. You know that type of thing. So, so um, it, it's a musical family. Now the problem is that. When you were dealing with the original property, they were not musical people. They were dramatic uh, performers. And as a result, they have this grandeur. And the thing is, they still have the grandeur in the show. That Fanny talks about the great uh, theater and that type of thing. But if they're musical performers, it doesn't have the same heft. Um, because drama in those days, theatrical drama was considered the highest of all art forms. I mean, the movies will look down upon, but frankly, musicals will look down upon at that point too, because musicals up until 1927, when Showboat happened, were rather silly endeavors. So if Aubrey Cavendish is this great performer, we assume he was a musical performer because that's all these people seem to be. They never talk about being anything but musicals. So really... What was Aubrey Cavendish in? A Trip to Chinatown? Evangeline? I mean, I, 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 but they, musical people didn't get the respect then that people in uh, who were centering on the classics, the, the, the new dramas, the Eugene O'Neill's, what have you. So it's a little off-putting. Now, I will admit this will not bother most of the people who won't um, think of it in these terms, but still, it did um, rub me slightly the wrong way that, um, that this was just ignored. That uh, So I would like to see um, a bit of a re- Right, where it's simply a musical family, and um, they can certainly be um, obsessed with uh, the musical theater, but I don't think they could have the haughtiness, the highfalutinness that um, the Fanny brings to the character as um, as if she's so self-important. Because again, musical theater performers were not judged in that way. Mm. Now, there's a musical that was in London uh, about forty odd years ago called *The Good Companions*, which was about a musical family, and it's based on a, a priestly novel. And uh, it has one of my favorite false rhymes. And you, uh, anybody who's listened to me for any length of time knows that I hate false rhymes. But I will forgive this one because it's so witty. And, um, and one person sings, when we said grace at our meals, we all meant Gracie Fields. Um, <laughs> yeah, Gracie Fields was a British performer of great uh, renown. And that's a nice way of saying, you know, that we were so possessed by the musical theater that we just kept on talking about uh, people day, morning, noon, afternoon, and night. So, so I think um, that uh, works a little better. Um, so the heft that um, is necessary for the royal family seems superfluous and even wrong here. Aside from that, if you can get past that, and God knows um, <laughs> 99.44% of the audience will not um, have any problem with that. So, uh, so I hope Royal Family continues because on its own terms, it's very entertaining. So uh, I wish it well. Um, I will say that at the beginning, Laura Michelle Kelly playing Julie struck me as bored. Um, But again, it's not boredom. It's nervousness, wondering what Gilbert is in the audience thinking and what she's going to do later that night. 
so uh, <laughs> it's a strange way to get a start. I, I, I think that uh, John Rando maybe should have directed her to be uh, anxious rather than um, nervous. Um, there is a difference between the two. And I think if she were excitedly anxious as opposed to dully nervous, I think it would have got the show off to a, a better start as well. Harriet Harris plays uh, Fanny. And of course, she's wonderful. She um, it's, it's uh, certainly a part that um, that she's extraordinarily right for. So um, so she's great fun. And uh, and also, if you know the play. <clears throat> they have two poor relations, so to speak. I don't know if they're really poor. Well, yeah, they are because they, they do borrow money. But more to the point, they are um, performers as well, and they don't do as well as um, the Cavendishes do. They're um, uh, on a lower plane. They don't get as much work. And um, and they're uh, played very well by Arnie Burton and Catherine Catherine Fitzgerald, as she's known now, um, she used to be Kathy Fitzgerald. She was marvelous um, 20 years ago, in, 22 years ago. Well, time goes fast in Swinging on a Star. But um, they're, they're always hoping um, to land uh, something wonderful so that they can uh, go to the level of the Cavendishes. And, um, and now they're going to be in a musical called The Striking Viking. And I don't know what's going on here. There's a very strange epidemic going on in musical theater where a second act opener is irrelevant to what uh, is uh. happening. Um, it happened in Matilda. It happened in Groundhog Day. Uh, it happened in Frozen. Um, but it happens here, too. The second act begins with uh, a scene from The Striking Viking. And um, I think it should be stricken uh, from the show. I, I, I don't think we need to see it. Uh, and... Um, but uh, what is this happening now that we have these irrelevant second act openings as opposed to um, songs that really relate to what we've seen before? I don't know. So I doubt that anybody would miss the striking Viking if indeed um, it were to be stricken. So, but so Peter, yeah, Peter, I think I believe you yourself have mentioned in this context steam heat from Damn Yankees. Yeah, I, I have a lot of problem with those George Abbott musicals that um, suddenly have. Um, <clears throat> Uh, production numbers, just for the sake of production numbers, uh, that there's, um, uh, you know, like the steam heat is done as a, as a benefit um, for the um, striking workers. Mm. Well, stri- striking's coming up a lot today, isn't it? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I find that um, uh, pretty irrelevant. And I'm, I don't think Who's Got the Pain opens the second act. Damn Yankees does it. I don't remember. But that's another one that's pretty irrelevant. Um, and again, that's a benefit for Joe Hardy, you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. So, uh, but um, I've never been much of a George Abbott fan. And uh, who knows? I guess everything uh, comes around again. And maybe uh, the spirit of George Abbott is um, infecting uh, these musicals by having <laughs> irrelevant uh, second act openings. So, um and I, you know, I, I, I imagine that uh, it's supposed to be a lot of fun to watch the Striking Viking, a parody of a, a bad musical. But um, I'm so interested in the Cavendishes, I'm not as interested in Kitty and Bert. So um, even though, as I say, they're very well played, but. Um, so I don't know. I, I I hope it comes to town. I wonder if there's an audience for it. I mean, it is so entrenched in the theater. And you might say, well, something rotten ran a while and it was entrenched in the theater as well. Yeah, but this is a, a, a strange um, subset of um, theater that I think people 
understand Shakespeare a bit more because they've had much more exposure to it, uh, especially with all free Shakespeare that goes around. I think a lot of people go out to see Shakespeare in free situations because it's a night out and it's free. Um, I, I'm not sure they understand the world of the theater in 1927. And 1927, after all, was theater's biggest year. That was the season where I think there were 264 shows presented on Broadway because the movies weren't talking yet. And of course, once the movies learned to talk, uh, well, then it changed and um, production went down and down and down and down. So um, so it's it's pretty interesting to have it in 1927, the apex of Broadway. And um, I just don't know if, if people are really going to understand um, the the passion of the um, of the Cavendishes and um, get that. But I will say um, that uh, the audience had a decent time. I uh, they didn't laugh uproariously. Uh, there was no sense of they recognized what was going on um, in the sense of um, you know really relating to it and saying oh I get that joke because I understand what theater was like in 1927. There was none of that. They um, they certainly dutifully applauded and um, uh, and appreciated the hard work and the wonderful characterizations that went on. Really, uh, the cast is top notch and. Um, I'd also like to point out that um, Haley Podchen and A.J. Shively as um, as uh, Gwen and Perry were really quite fine, too. So um, a, a very, very fine cast doing tremendous work. And um, I think if you're a big theater fan, I guess you are if you're listening to us <laughs> at all, um, <clears throat> you would certainly find uh, the worth of this. But I wouldn't be surprised if my objection occurred to you as well, that uh, musicals just didn't have the um, erudite uh, feel that uh, straight placed in those days. Mm -hmm. So there's so much talk about this production coming into New York. And as I mentioned before, you know, this has been workshopped and been around for many years. Uh, the thing that makes me think that it's more serious now is that the Royal family of Broadway uh, is being supported by Stacey Mindich, uh, the Broadway producer who most recently has produced uh, Dear Evan Hansen. Hansen, yeah. uh, And uh, there is talk that uh, that that this is trying to come in. So maybe we'll have a the ability to see this again, and maybe they'll uh, take heed of your words, Peter, and uh, make those changes necessary. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I'd laugh at that too, right? I understand. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, as has been mentioned, this property has been kicking around for what is like twenty years or more. Uh -huh. Sure. And uh, I have to say that just having heard about it back then, it did sound to me like exactly what Peter said would be an issue because mm -hmm. of the the different tone of that the type of well the type of theater that. The, these people are involved in in the original play, and then if you change it to a musical, to them being in the musical theater, that's going to, I would think, uh, really change the characters a lot, and uh, you, you not you can't not something you can easily do. Not easily, and um, I guess what the, the succinct way of putting it is that the Cavendishes would look down on musical theater performers as being, exactly. um, yeah, second rate to uh, to the great uh, dramas that uh, have such heft and meaning and themes and life changing situations. So, so I think that's um, really a problem. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move forward, Michael. You got a chance to see the boys in the band over the Roof Theater, so why don't you tell us about that? 
Yes, I did not have access to press tickets for this show, so I paid for my ticket. And I was very glad that I did because I think it's a wonderful production of this, uh, pardon the expression, seminal gay play by Mark Crowley, uh, directed by Joe Mantello. Um, Before I forget, Mark Crowley was our guest on the podcast some years ago. I think it was uh, upon the release of a documentary about the whole history of the boys in the band and, and the film is called making the boys. And I believe it came out in 2011. So, uh, James, maybe you can look through the archives and see if you can find that, uh, that I think that would be really interesting to hear again, especially now that the show is back. And this is the, the play's Broadway debut. It, it originally opened off Broadway, um, in, uh, 1968. And, uh, so this is an anniversary year for it. Um, so that's a great reason to bring it back. Also, we have a very, very um, significant situation here where all of the cast, every single person in the cast is an openly gay male. And that is something that would not have been able to happen, I think, even just a few years ago. So I um, I can't stress too too far the importance of that. I, th- I think it's impossible to overestimate the importance of that. And uh, but also, I think that the the producer and the director and the cast members have made the point that they are all openly gay without sledgehammering it home. And I think that's good too. I think they've walked a very nice line between making it clear and yet not harping on it. So bravo to them on all that. I think this is uh, a play which holds up magnificently well. It has been very controversial from the from day one because of the portrayal of many of these characters living their lives in New York City just before uh, the dawn of the the modern gay rights movement. And uh, I think the chief problem that many people have with the play is that a few of the characters seem very unhappy and or self-loathing. But I think uh, uh, many, many people have made this point um, in, in since – this uh, new production has opened and made it in reviews and in discussions and everything that it, uh, it it's hard for uh, those of us who weren't necessarily around in, in that time uh, as gay adults or gay kids for that matter to picture the, the amount of re- of repression and suppression that was necessary in most places to live one's life uh, as a, as a gay person. And there was, the, the the case of people being closeted, I'm sure, were were many hundreds of times uh, greater than they are now because it just was not society was not changing quickly enough. Um, uh, the the incredible irony, and it's so fascinating here, is that between the time the play opened off Broadway in 68 and between the release of the film version in 1970 is when a little thing called the Stonewall riots occurred. And I actually said, I made this point um, several times in the past few days. I think that if Crowley had written it a year later, like even just right after the Stonewall riots, I suspect he might've written it 
differently. But th- as it is, this is a very valuable time capsule of pre-Stonewall era gay men uh, and how they're living their lives and um, the degree to which they're open or not open about it with other people. And I think um, it is true that one or two of the characters, certainly including the lead, uh, the central role of Michael, played in this production by Jim Parsons, uh, do come across as unhappy and or self-loathing. But there are several who don't. Among them, uh, Michael's friend Donald, played by Matt Bomer. Also, there's um, a uh, couple uh, that uh, of... uh, Don, uh, excuse me, Larry, played by Andrew Rannells, and Hank, played by Tuck Watkins. And they certainly are, uh, they're not very happy because they're having relationship problems, but it's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a self-loathing thing. Um, I uh, think that everyone did a wonderful job in this show, the, except the, my, my one exception is I would have to accept um Charlie Carver as cowboy. He just it didn't ring true to me. He didn't seem like uh, realistically like a dim bulb. And I think that hurt the play a little bit. It's not an inept performance by any means of the imagination. But uh, I think it that he could have made some better choices as far as that. And maybe director Joe Mantello might have helped him. And the other thing I uh, uh, kind of objected to was the set. Uh, I know the point is that it's it's Michael's apartment. He's supposed to be pretentious. He's, he wears designer sweaters. He's la- living way, way above his means on credit. Uh, and uh, the point is made that most of the stuff, most of his possessions are not paid for. So I, I think in that sense, it, it's okay for the apartment to look pretentious, but it just looked to me, all to the point of complete unreality. There's red everywhere, and it looked more like a, I don't know, uh, like an anteroom or, 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 of a of a museum or a or a um, some kind of a private club or uh, even a over in the chic uh, new club. Uh, so David Zinn's uh, scenic design, I I found it distracting personally, but. Um, direction, uh, acting, uh, the uh, degree to which this plays, so much of it still stands up. Uh, Here's an interesting little thing. Um, Some of the references uh, in the play to uh, famous people, uh, people who were famous at the time or old movie stars, some of them have been cut and some of them have been retained and some of them have been changed. Uh, there's one particular moment I noticed uh, early on. Michael answers his phone and his line is supposed to be backstage, New Moon. Uh, New Moon was an old operetta uh, and just so he's just like some little flip gay comment that he's making. Now it's been changed to uh, at the performance I saw anyway, he said backstage, Funny Girl. Now, Funny Girl was closed <laughs> by hmm. April by April 19th. Well, so was New Moon. So was <laughs> right. So so was New Moon. That that's what I was about to say. Oh. Uh, but it would have been funny. Uh, I was I wonder if they considered saying backstage, "Hello Dolly." Uh-huh. That would have been really funny because of course that show is back with us. Right, yeah. Um but this play uh this is the third um Excellent production that that I've seen in the past 15 or 20 years. There was an off-off-Broadway one with uh, David Drake and David Greenspan and and lots of other wonderful people in the cast. And then there was the Transport Group production, which was performed in an actual 
mock-up of an of an actual apartment, um, and very. Uh, with the audience seated, much of the audience seated like two inches away from the actors. Um, so you don't get that at the booth theater, but it's still a, an intimate theater and uh, and a very wonderful, intimate production, uh, which in which all of these stars who you, know, you one might have been. Uh, a little hesitant of about some of the casting. Maybe people were pe- being cast because uh, they're openly gay, and, and they, you know that can get very dicey. But no, everyone is really fantastic. Zachary Quinto does an amazing job as Harold, and Robin De Jesus as Emery. Uh, in a, uh, uh, <laughs> I guess, a very different interpretation of the role. Uh, he's also wonderful. Brian Hutchinson as Alan. Michael Benjamin Washington as Bernard. Um, Tuck Watkins, I previously mentioned, is Hank, um, and uh, I think that I think that's it for the cast. So I would recommend trying to get to see it. I noticed um, a day after I paid uh, big bucks for my ticket, I got a offer, an email offer for I think it was maybe uh, through Broadway Direct. Apparently, it seems like the only time that you might be able to get a discount seat is uh, if you try to go sometime right around the July 4th week. uh, I was going to say weekend. July 4th falls on a Wednesday this year. And it seems like at least at the time this this email went out that uh, sales were soft for that period. So you might want to look for that and see if you can get that code. uh, it would definitely be worth it. But even if you have to pay full price, I would say in this case, you you are very likely going to be very, very happy. Well, I will defend this play till the day I die. And because while I didn't see the original cast in 1968, I did see a terrific production in Boston in 1969. And the most interesting thing about that, when I think of it now, it was um, usually shows came to Boston for one week, two weeks, three weeks, sometimes even four weeks. This was an open-ended engagement and stayed there for more than two months. And uh, that's even more significant when you think that it was at the Wilbur Theater, which had 1,246 seats. Now, Broadway was playing a theater four, a theater that sadly does not exist anymore. Even though it was called Theater Four, it was on 55th Street uh, between 9th and 10th Avenue, and I think it had about 299 seats. Mm-hmm. So to think that uh, they were trying to sell a thousand more seats a night in Boston, which of course doesn't have the population that New York does, was really quite amazing that people came out to see it, and they did. But I will defend this play for a number of reasons. For one thing, Think about what would have happened in this play if Alan had not arrived. These guys were dancing when he arrived. They mm-hmm. were having a good time. So for all the talk of the, the gays are so um, self-loathing and all that kind of business, would that have happened if a straight guy had not entered their world? That's a really good question, I think. Now, there's a big point about Michael having given up um, liquor, but mm. when Alan, when when the, the you should pardon the expression, shit hits the fan, um, <laughs> that's when he starts drinking, and that's when he starts getting hostile, and it's established earlier in the play that when he drinks, he gets hostile. Would he have drunk if indeed uh, Alan had not arrived and changed things? Now, what, what happens in this play is that when Alan arrives, suddenly the men are judging themselves by him and his standards and not their own. And why wouldn't they remember that members of the American Psychiatric Association, who had more PhDs than there are seats in the Booth Theater, had decreed that since its inception, the organization's inception, that homosexuals were mentally ill. 
They would change that belief in that policy in a few more years. And I think the boys in the band could have been a contributing factor. Why? So these guys would grown up, uh, grew up hearing they were mentally ill. You know, right. so why wouldn't they be self-loathing since the, the, I mean, it's considering that nobody says, I believe I'm mentally ill in the play. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they're doing pretty well. And don't forget, Michael says he's from hot coffee, Mississippi. Yes. Can you imagine what it was like growing up in Mississippi back in the 40s, 50s, whatever it was, um, being a gay man. Um, Michael says he's 32, 32 from uh, <laughs> 68 is what, uh, 36. I mean, it's hard, you know, <laughs> so under those circumstances, you you know, I don't want to hear anything about the fact, oh, they're so whiny, oh, they're, they're pathetic. That's what society made them. That's the reason it happened that way, and that's what's horrible when people criticize the play for those reasons. They can't take it in context of the fact that it's 1968. And um, as somebody was sitting in an audience in 1969 and seeing men weep openly mm. because they were seeing their stories on stage – there is validity in the voice in the band. And yes, it's a period piece. And thank God it's a period piece. I agree a thousand percent. And now I have to ask you this Boston production you saw in 1969. Do you remember by any chance where Stonewall fell in that? Was it before, after or during? Um, it opened in April of 69. Stonewall was, of course, in June of 69. And it closed in Boston, I think, actually, the day before Stonewall. I think oh, it closed. man. It mm. might have been a week before that. But um, I think it was still there um, into at least mid-June. I know then it went to Washington. Ironically enough, a friend of mine who was in the service uh, who loved the production and uh, went many, many times. Um, I'm sorry. He, he was about to go into the service. And uh, they said to him, um, gee, we're not sure if we can uh, put you here or, or Bainbridge, Maryland. He said, oh, please, Bainbridge, Maryland, because Boys in the Band was going to Washington. That production was going to the National Theater in Washington, and he wanted to see it again. And here's an interesting story involving him, and that is the fact that he was crazy about the production. And at that point, he dared to um, go and to the stage door, and he wanted to take pictures of the, the cast, tremendous cast. Um, I, I will admit that only Rex Robbins, who was playing Hank, uh, went on to really uh, bigger and better things. There was an actor named Paul Rudd playing Cowboy, not the mm -hmm. Paul now a different Paul Rudd who mm. did a bit too but most of them didn't really um, do that much I'm sorry to say because they were magnificent but um, anyway so he's taking pictures at the, at the uh, stage door and the guys are saying okay but we're not going to be huddled together you know I uh, don't think we're going to you know touch each other or anything like that and they and I imagine some of the guys in that production were indeed gay but they even then they had to pretend that they weren't for the photographer the, the amateur photographer who was taking their pictures Yes. I'm telling you, you know, it was a different world. And uh, and I believe, ironically enough, I was at a I was emceeing a, um, a, a an awards night in New Jersey for high school kids. And I at the end, of, I was talking about the fact that um, if you were Jewish, your life has been made better by uh, the diary of Anne Frank, uh, because people became far more sympathetic. Uh, if indeed you were black, your life was made better because of Raisin in the Sun, because mm -hmm. 
theater goers went into that theater saying, I don't want blacks living next to me. When they came out, they weren't so sure. And I said, and if you are gay, your life has been made better by boys in the band. And I thought I might get a little controversy on that because I said to him, you know, if you are black, if you are Jewish, if you are gay, if you're two of the three or even three of the three, which is possible, <laughs> you know, your life has been made better. And my point was, who knows what place you'll be in or write or direct that will change people's perceptions too. go out and do it. But I really thought I might get some heat. The parents would come from just say, how dare you suggest the kids are gay? And nothing like that happened. I'm happy to say, but um, I really do believe that today's gays are having an easier time of it because of boys in the band. And I'm so happy for this production that it happened. Uh, bravo to the producers and the cast. I, I get the impression that this was built largely around Jim Parsons, who has had such tremendous success on television in the Big Bang Theory and how, who has been coming to do theater, uh, it seems like, on every, every hiatus that he's had yeah. for the past few years. So, um, And I think he does a wonderful job in the role. I'm glad that we are told uh, and this has always been in the script that the character is from Hot Coffee, Mississippi, because that uh, coincides with uh, roughly with Jim's uh, real life accent. And so I, I found him 100 percent credible in the role and everyone else was was just doing a bang up job. And this is a great revival. Michael, when you said um, back before <laughs> backstage, hello, Dolly. Um, yeah. <laughs> we have to also note that the Booth Theater literally is backstage at Holodolly. <laughs> so that would have been right. even – I didn't quite realize that when I said it. But yes, wouldn't that have been amazing? <laughs> <laughs> and I went back in the archives and uh, the interview at Mark Crowley was uh, on February 27, 2011. Mm. I, called, I called the episode The Talented Mr. Crowley. Uh, yeah. which was probably a twist on that movie, The Talented Mr. Ripley, at the time. But uh, but he quite is very talented. And Matt, Matthew Murray was on that uh, was on that interview. So I remember it was a great interview. So yeah, if we could. Uh, yeah, link, I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's ironic that we had uh, Fravor on just a few minutes ago because I think The Boys in the Band is such a wonderful show with a terrible window card, oh. terrible terrible window card. <laughs> <laughs> can we, uh, Frank, could you fix that for us, please? Um, you mean the black? You mean the black and white photo of them just sitting there? No, no, no. They have this, oh. uh, just the text, the black uh, background with the text, uh, the boys in the band. The, the oh. photo of all the guys, it's great. It's great. Yeah, great. It's great. And, but uh, that's and an homage to the original uh, yes. because that was yes. the uh, uh, one of the original logos. Not um, mm -hmm. there, there was a drawing that was used uh, originally as well. But uh, I don't know if Frank would be so upset with the um, actual what, the plastics that are up at the booth because um, I believe they're black and red. And um, Frank has told me over the years that his favorite colors to use are black, red, mm. and white. So um, so you might not be. But yes, I know what you're saying. <laughs> it's just the lettering. You know, I mean, and, right. and we. We like to have more than just lettering, absolutely. So The Boys in the Band was a new production for me. I've never read it. I've never seen it before and things like uh, along that line. This is such an incredible all-star cast, mm. and the story is totally new to me. And really, uh, honestly, if you take out the wired telephones and the fact that nobody's holding a uh, smartphone in their hand right. uh, and that people are listening in, I mean – it's almost as though that this play could be contemporary. Mm. Uh, I, I think that as, as far as, as we have come, uh, we still have 
many of these issues that are uh, that were discussed in this in this play. And as Peter says, yes, this is uh, this has been a groundbreaking uh, for people in in many different communities, not just in the gay community. But this could be an allusion to some of the so many of the other communities that uh, that are repressed. Uh, well, also, Marta's told me that there literally have been high school productions. And um, mm, I think that's mm. uh, kind of interesting as well because, of course, there are still plenty of people in high school uh, who s- certainly look down on gays and um, and haven't progressed to the state that uh, many of us have. So, so really, um, I have a feeling this play may be doing some good in high schools as well. I, 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 I can't say that I've ever seen a high school production listed, but he says it's actually happened. And, uh, I'll tell you, if I heard there was a high school production of Boys in the Band anywhere north of the Mason Dickinson line, east of the Mississippi, um, I would definitely try to make an effort to go to see what that audience would be like and how they would take to it. Um, so, well, with the Broadway production and this one only playing through August 11th, uh, what we typically see is that um, uh, high-visibility Broadway productions done this year will end up in the regional theaters in the next couple of years. So That's true, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, good for you, James. That's mm. right. Yeah, yes. yeah. So I think so- that we're going to see a lot of opportunities for uh, people to see and actually be in productions of Boys in the Band in the next couple of years, I would think that with this cast that they've got and what's going on here, that this would be a natural for Broadway HD. I'm hoping that they record yeah. it. And uh, yeah. what Good do you idea. think, Peter? Okay. Yep. I wasn't sure it. if you were if you were agreeing or disagreeing with that. Yeah. Oh no 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 no. Um, spread the word. It's it's really important. Um, I think it's one of the highlights of my. Um, well, I'm, last season I saw my 11,000th play, and um, I think Voice of the Bands is is, um, is one of the highlights of my entire uh, theater-going experience, so, um, so I, I will defend it till the death. Well, there's nothing more that can be said after that statement, so let's <laughs> move forward. Peter, you got a chance to get over to New World Stages to see Desperate Measures, the musical. So uh, tell us about this uh, play. Yeah, I like Desperate Measures quite a bit. Um, I think it um, is a terrific show. And um, when I reviewed it um, for Broadway Select, where I do a a review every Monday, I um, certainly said that I thought that it was better than Shakespeare. Now, I've been... um, needled uh, for saying that because um, I should have been more specific. What I mean is, <laughs> what I should have said was, it um, they've really improved Measure for Measure, which is um, a tough play. It's been called a problem play. And uh, in fact, uh, I don't recall when I started at the York Theater that they had this little um, prologue where one of the performers came out and um, mentioned that it's a a problem play. So I think they've solved the problems of the problem play, and I'm not going to uh, give away what some of those things are, but I will say that this is a country musical. It's set in Arizona, and it has mostly country music. David Friedman is a marvelous composer, and uh, for those people always say, well, you never come out humming the tunes. Um, I think you will with this one. Uh, I think they're really good. Now, it's hard to write a musical libretto, isn't it? Well, Peter Kellogg (laughs) not only gave himself a challenge of writing a musical libretto, but 
he, he did it in rhyme. Uh, it's all in rhyme couplets. Um, so life isn't hard enough that to, to write a musical book, he had to make it even harder for himself. And that's part of the delight of the show, listening to the uh, rhyme couplets. And um, so that's a great deal of fun. And uh, the cast is really quite marvelous, um, quite marvelous indeed. Um, aside from one, um, I believe just one, performer, it was a case where they got everybody back and um, uh, and I was really nervous that they weren't going to get back um, that they weren't going to get somebody who was really as good as the original lady um, who was playing the lead um, and uh, this is the one who's Isabella in Measure for Measure she's Susanna here but she's Sister Mary Jo, uh, she's about to take her vows, not unlike Maria in The Sound of Music and it's a good thing she doesn't um, because of course um, better well better is the subjective word here uh, a different fate is in store for her but uh, it's now played by a, an actress named Sarah Parnicki and she is just delightful and um, I'm glad she came into the audience because um, she came right near me and I could see what delicious dimples she has too and that's exactly the type of person you want for this role this innocent lovely lovely girl who finds herself in a difficult situation because her brother um, is uh, was involved in a, um, a gunfight and uh, it was self-defense and there are two witnesses who will tell you that it was self-defense they will tell you but you have a hard-ass governor who wants to make an example of Johnny Blood, and he wants him to hang to show that law and order is going to be the main thing here. So um, he's quite fascistic. And um, and while Nick and Wyman was uh, terrific in um, the York production, last night when I went, he wasn't in. And an actor named Tom Serrata was in, and he was great. I mean, Nick Wyman's great. Don't misunderstand me. But, I mean, it's always so impressive when you see an understudy. Now, the show hasn't been running that long, and I, for all I know, Nick's been out a week took a vacation and maybe this was Tom's um, eighth performance for all I know. But, you know, it proves once again that understudies are just so able and so magnificent when uh, put to the test. And uh, he was put to the test and he was perfectly wonderful. So um, playing the hard ass governor. And in fact, um, he's a German immigrant. And so you have to adopt that accent and still be understood. And he, he did it perfectly. So that was really quite wonderful as well. <clears throat> so it really is a tremendous Tremendously good show uh, with twists and turns and Lauren Molina, who's been nominated for every possible award, I think, that you can get when you're in an off-Broadway show, um, <clears throat> plays uh, the woman with whom there's going to be the switch. If you know Measure for Measure, um, uh, the governor is a hypocrite who says to um, um, Isabella in the original play, um, if you sleep with me, I'll pardon your brother. And um, she doesn't want to do that. So they get somebody to switch. Well, Laura Molina plays the girl who switches. She's uh, 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 one of these um, entertainers like um, Madeline Kahn in uh, Blazing Saddles, a, a, a showgirl in a, in a saloon. But she also turns tricks on the side. So it's not going to be the end of the world for her to do this. Um, one tiny flaw has to be that uh, she indicates early on that she has slept with the governor already. And um, under those circumstances, well, you know, wouldn't he recognize? No, it's, uh, there's a big thing about everything's got to be done in the dark. But still, um, I don't think it's impossible that he would recognize her body if he's had it. Uh, and she 
implies many times before. So, um, so I think that line of dialogue could have been dropped and it would have uh, helped the show a bit. But, you know, something occurred to me that never occurred to me before. And I mean, I've seen Measure for Measure, I'd say about 15 times. I've seen Desperate Measures twice. And it never occurred to me until last night. Yeah, I, you know, I, one would expect that um, Isabella or Sister Mary Jo would be a virgin. And uh, I would think that um, <laughs> the governor would know right away that he's not dealing with a virgin once um, he gets in bed. That never comes up in Shakespeare. It never comes up in the show. But um, I wish there were a way around that. I'm sure – I wonder if Shakespeare actually <laughs> agonized over that point. Um, and, um, but that's maybe another problem of the problem play. Um, it's going to make a terrific cast album. It's already been um, assigned to Broadway Ma- Masterworks Broadway, for whom I write a column. And um, so uh, you can look forward to that. So even if you don't get to New York to see the show, I think you're going to have a good time with a rollicking country uh, score that really fits the characters extraordinarily well. So uh, a very, very good show, and I wish it well, and I hope it has a long, 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 long run at New World Stages. All right. So we'll have a link to the Desperate Measures website in the show notes. It's an open-ended run at New World Stages, so uh, get over there and check it out. Uh, Michael, you wanted to talk about an anniversary of a specific production of Sweet Charity, so tell us about that. Yeah, I just think this is a neat story. You'll tell me if you agree. I uh, th- This past uh, Friday, June 15th, I was with a friend who's heavily involved in the theater, spending some time at his home, and uh, he has hundreds of videos. Uh, I hasten to set, state, uh, not bootlegs. Uh, these are archival videos that various uh, theater companies have made uh, of various productions, and um, he has uh, – you have to understand how many hundreds of them he has for this story to make sense. So I went over and there there was another uh, fellow that he invited over and um, and my friend said, well, when you, when you both get here, we'll decide if we want to watch something and what we'll watch. And so when we got there, out of the hundreds of things that he has, he, he started um, mentioning three or four of them. And he said, well, you know, there's that – a sweet charity staged concert that was done some years ago at Avery Fisher Hall. And I said, uh, I was I was there to see that live and I loved it, but I would love to see it again if you have it, because I never I would, didn't even know if there was any kind of archival video and I haven't seen it since then. Um, so uh, he 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 found that and he put it on and the three of us were watching and it starts off with some um uh, interview footage, I think actually from the after party, the first person on screen is Cheetah Rivera talking about this amazing event that had just happened. Uh, and that's used as the preamble. But then the uh, the tape of the show itself starts. And there, there aren't full credits at the beginning, but it says sweet Char- something like Sweet Charity, a benefit for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights, AIDS, and AMFAR. Uh, and then said Avery Fisher Hall, which of course is no longer called Avery Fisher Hall. And then it said June 15th, 1998. Uh, so completely wow. coincidence. <laughs> we have all the hundreds of videos that he had 
he picked out one uh, that had happened exactly 20 years earlier wow. to the date. And, and and if you have heard of this or seen it, you know how special it is because this was a production in which the role of charity was split up between Gwen Verdon, Cheetah Rivera, B.B. Newworth, Donna McKechnie, Debbie Allen, and I think one or two other people. Uh, uh, in other roles, we got people like Robert Goulet, Dom DeLuise, Charles Nelson Riley, uh, Marla Maples is in it <laughs> as the no talent actress who, who uh, is, is having an argument with Vittorio Vidal and both uh, David Dinkins and Ed Koch, uh, mayors of New York, were present. It was an amazing evening. Oh, and Cy Coleman himself opened the show with a specially created um well, I, I don't know if it was specially created for that evening, but it was a suite, a suite of music from Sweet Charity with Cy himself at the piano. And it was uh, it was an amazing night. And I, I, I don't I don't necessarily believe in whatever higher power or karma or all that stuff. But we were all pretty flabbergasted that we happened to pick something that had opened exactly 20 years before. Um, the night that we happened to sit down and watch it. Um, so I don't know if the, uh, some of the Broadway cares, uh, videos of things like uh, Broadway bears and the Easter bonnet and those, some of them are available through Broadway cares for a donation. I do not know if this is among them. Uh, you can certainly make the request and if it is available, I would say it's worth whatever they are asking you to pay for it. <laughs> so, uh, I found a review from variety, from yes, I did too. Yeah. Charles Isherwood, correct? Isherwood, yeah. And so I'll Ray. link to that. I'll link to that in the show notes if anybody wants to take a look at that and check it out. Yep. Um, before we wrap up for today, uh, it's been a week since the Tony Awards. Uh, any thoughts about uh, the Tony Awards, Peter or Michael? Sure. Uh, I'll say that I was very proud of the Tony Awards uh, for recognizing the band's visit as much as it did. I was really worried as time went on that uh, it would not um, win the big prize or some of the others because um, it is the least commercial of the four musicals that uh, were presented this year um, to uh, Tony voters. And so um, I was very, very pleased with that. The two things that I knew would happen certainly did happen. And um, <clears throat> because I had no doubt whatsoever, uh, whatsoever, that Lindsay Mendez uh, would win uh, the prize. I really was 100% uh, convinced of that. And of mm -hmm. course, Glenn and Glenda Jackson, those were the two that I knew were going to happen. Um, I knew that Glenda Jackson would win far more than I knew that Lindy, Lindsay Mendez would win. But still, I knew that those two things were going to happen. So I was very glad about that. I didn't see the show. This is the first time I've ever missed the Tonys since they were nationally broadcast in 1967. Wow. But um, I was in London and... Uh, um, but it, and so I still haven't seen the show, but I, I do intend to watch it, and uh, I look forward to seeing what um, what the night was like because I've I've heard good things about the two hosts, and yes. um, a lot of people were very uh, skeptical about them, um, and uh, so I'm glad to hear that they passed muster uh, with um, many people. So, hey, uh, I you know again. I, I thought that I was going to remember something and I didn't write it down. We didn't talk about your London trip and we're running long today. So let's yeah, talk next about week. London next week. Next week. Yeah, sure. we'll talk about the London trip next week. I, you know, oh. have to remember these things to write it down. Please, don't worry about it. So, uh, Michael, what do you think about the Tonys? Yeah. 
Yeah, I uh, I mean, first of all, it, it's a tribute, I think, to both Lindsay Mendez and Audra McDonald that they both won Tony Awards for the role of Carrie Pipperidge, which you would not normally think would be a, a Tony winning type of role. So I think that says a lot for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree about that, uh, that both Josh Groban and Sarah Burles were extremely charming. I um, think that under the circumstances, it was best that no reference at all was made to the person who hosted the awards last year. Uh-huh. And it's Kevin Spacey. And sure. it's kind of mind boggling to think how much has happened in, le- in less than a year, really, mm-hmm. since that happened. So I, I think they made the right decision. Whereas um, if you saw the Oscars this year, there was some direct address uh, to uh, several things going on, including the Harvey Weinstein situation. Uh, so but I think this was uh, the, uh, the best decision as far as not dealing with it, <laughs> dealing with it by not dealing with it on the Tonys. Uh, I thought the show overall went pretty well. I, my big objection, and uh, I've heard from several others, I think they spent too much time on certain things, uh, which uh, then didn't give them enough time uh, for <laughs> such minor awards as as score of a musical uh, to be presented do- d- live during the show. And uh, an interesting thing on that uh, front is that I think last year it was the opposite, uh, and the book of a musical was presented off, uh, off well, n- not live, um, and score was. But uh, uh, many people have expressed the opinion that the reason yes. that the yep. book uh, – was presented this year was because everyone thought everyone <laughs> Tina Fey was going to win for Mean Girls. Mm-hmm. Um, so I uh, I I have no objection to any of the awards that were given. Uh, some of them weren't my first choices, but I don't think there was any situation where uh, where anybody was robbed. Um, I wouldn't uh, you know I wouldn't say. I think everyone was very deserving, and uh, I, I very much enjoyed the in memorial uh, in memoriam sequence uh, we thought of a couple people who maybe were left out some of them probably uh, were, too, were too recent to be included um, and but overall it was it was really great and I am I'm thrilled about the band's visit I think it's the kind of show that could greatly benefit from sure, sure. from all those Tonys whereas uh, some of the other shows maybe didn't need it so uh, yeah, and also just in terms of quality, I do think it is the best show. Well, so, in fact, last night at Desperate Measures, I met a gentleman who works at TKTS, and he told me that the band's visit and Once in the Silent mm. have, dis- have disappeared from uh, TKTS because, indeed, um, they got such a bump from winning the prizes at the Tonys. So it's really quite nice that um, they're both doing well. Fabulous news. So uh, a few things before we run out. Uh, Frozen, I think, set a record here for the most nominations and not getting any awards, which is no, fr- uh, interesting. <laughs> no, Frozen got uh, three nominations. Uh, mean Girls is the one oh, with that, Mean um, Girls. Mean Girls. Yeah, no, mean, no. yeah. Okay. Yeah, Mean Girls uh, tied with uh, Scottsboro Boys for the um, – for the most nominations with uh, no wins whatsoever. So, uh, but, you know, seriously, <laughs> it's a cliche, but it is an honor to be nominated. Um, yes. I am terrified uh, <laughs> of losing Katrina Lenk because she made such a great performance on the Tony Awards and mm-hmm. uh, gracious speech and things like that, that I could just see all the television, movie, and other types of uh 
<laughs> people swarming in to steal her away from us. So let's hope uh, hope we don't lose her. Uh, and the fact that we had no real flurry of uh, closing announcements in the last seven days. Mm. So uh, I, I think that that's due to a, a number of different issues that there weren't a tremendous amount of openings, things that are open, are pretty financially stable. Uh, you know, other than Escape to Margaritaville, we don't look like anything's going to happen. There's talk of uh, work uh, construction over at the palace, which might impact SpongeBob SquarePants, but we still don't know that. SpongeBob numbers are not great, but also, you know, Nickelodeon is certainly in a position to fund that if they would like. I tell you, if they destroy that theater... I am going to start a class a class action lawsuit. Uh, I you heard it here. I, I promise. But hopefully it won't come to that, obviously. But if they do, by trying to lift it up off the ground, uh I'm not gonna be happy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You did hear it here first. Michael has a mission. <laughs> so before we wrap up for the morning, I want to remind you that we can you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play. Anywhere that you can get finer podcasts, you can get broader video as well. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me, as well as link to some of the things we've talked about today, including Frank Verlizzo's website, the book at the uh, Drama Bookstore, uh, Royal Family of Broadway at Barrington Stage. All those different things can be found at broaderradio.com in the show notes. So, Peter, what is the answer to trivia from two weeks ago? Well, I said I was looking for the name of a smash hit musical that is so famous that it has name recognition with people who know virtually nothing about musicals, <laughs> a musical that was even made into more than one movie. Then I wanted the name of a comedy that opened on Broadway precisely 47 years to the day before that musical, a play whose title was a parody of the musical source material, the name of the musical and the far, far, far less successful comedy. Well, <clears throat> the musical was Annie which opened on April 21st, 1977. And the comedy was Little Orchid Annie. Yes, Orchid <laughs> like the flower, not often, which we all know Annie once was. Little Orchid Annie opened April 21st, 1930, 47 years earlier, and played 16 performances or one 149th the length of Annie's original run. So for the third week in a row, Third week in a row, Daniel <laughs> Schwartzberg was the first to get it. He's becoming the Ken Jennings of Broadway radio trivia. <clears throat> following, <clears throat> excuse me, following him was Jack Leshner and Brigadude. So, this week's question: The original production of these plays are in order for a certain reason. What do they have in common? Mary, Mary, Darkness at Noon, Mister Big. Everywhere I Roam, The Late George Apley, and The Captains and the Kings. All right. So if you have an answer there, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
but security would safety have a cost. Someday they will thank me. Someday they will thank me for rooting out the riffraff everywhere. On the show are common bonds. They will capture me in bronze in Van Rick the Hank and Flip through the square. Someday they will thank me. Someday they will thank me for purging those who are a cup of tea. I'm a hero, they'll conclude. On the show their gratitude, they will name their children Otto after me. Even the girls will be called Otto. <laughs> Do you think that I enjoy looking on as some poor boy spins through the air by his neck, gasping you to peels as he kicks out with his heels? Just the thought of it. Well, I'm a wreck. But a man cannot afford to spare the rod. Not when he's on a mission, blessed by God. Someday they will thank me. Someday they will thank me for everything I've done on their behalf. They will cheer me in the street when each citizen I meet will entreat me for my auto autograph. All right. <laughs> Make Arizona great again. <laughs> Otto. Sunday day will thank me. Sunday day will thank me for the very measures they poo poo. Every liberal will attest. Who's the man who won the best? Van Rick the Hankin.